All right, it is a joy to be with you this weekend and to learn from God's Word. So as, as Pastor Brian said, if you were here this weekend, you'll hear a few things that are, that are redundant, but not overly. I don't, I, I don't think you'll be sorry you came to Sunday school. If you weren't here at all, you should not be lost. So this is a standalone message that I often do to kind of orient people, if I can only speak once, on this issue of idols of the heart. Why does the heart matter so much? How do we really change? This is where I go. And you're going to see a verse when I read the chunk that I'm going to read today that, that most people know that we're going to gather our thoughts around and begin to unpack. So what does that mean and what does it look like? What I'm talking about is how do we change? And when you go to God's Word, not just in the Old but in the New Testament, you see it's about the heart, the heart, the heart, the heart, the heart. But when I say that word in our American culture, we usually think feelings, feelings, feelings. And the Bible means far more than that. I'll get to it. Turn to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. And you follow along as I begin reading in verse 10. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 10. Hear, my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I've taught you in the way of wisdom. I've led you in right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. And when you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter into the perfect day. The, the way of the wicked is like a darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ears to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established do not turn to the right or to the left remove your foot from evil so based on Proverbs 4.23, that's the verse we're going to zero in on, I want to show you why God tells us over and over in the Bible that the heart is the place to start for real change. I'm convinced that most Christians, I grew up in the church, I was saved when I was seven, and by the grace of God, my family, my mom and dad, got, I got saved in vacation Bible school. So this happens. And a woman that was in a ceramics class with my mom just invited my mom to bring her boys. I have a twin brother. We were five. Bring us to this VBS. And my mom had no intentions of actually doing it. This was deep south Chattanooga where you just smile and act like you're going to do it, but you're not. And I guess she gave her her address because the woman showed up at the front door. We were in our pajamas. And again, if you were in New Jersey, my mom would have run her off. But Chattanooga, you're like, oh, she dressed us. And sent us with Margaret Kirkpatrick, this German woman with a heavy German accent. And I'm bringing home little worksheets that are like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, color it black. And my mom and dad are looking at these worksheets at night and they're offended. We're not sinners and our precious little boys are not sinners. But through that, she invited my mom and dad to a Friday night Bible study at Covenant College uh, on the hill there in Chattanooga. And my parents came to faith in Christ. We came to faith in Christ at seven years old. So I've been in good Bible teaching churches my whole life, but here's what I think is sometimes the dirty little secret. The longer you're in them, you continue to grow in your knowledge of the Word, knowledge of the Word, knowledge of the Word, and most people don't want to say it out loud, but there's still this gnawing concern, but I still really struggle to change in some areas. Even when I say, I know I shouldn't do that so much, I want to do this, and I'll try to do it some more, and even sometimes memorize a Bible verse that says do that more, or a Bible verse that says stop doing what you were doing, and I don't see much progress. What's wrong? 
this is what I think is missing. An understanding of the heart. Until you begin to go after the sin beneath the sin. This is what you're saying. This is what you're doing. But this is why. These are root sins and these are fruit sins. When the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about root, motives, affections, what I prize, what I treasure, what I really want, what I really believe, what I worship. In other words, I would tell you, because I've been not just a pastor for 30 years, I've been counseling for about 30, 34 years pastor, 30 of them counseling. I keep meeting with people. Here's what it sounds like, and maybe you can relate. They're surprised by where they are in life. Now, don't hear me saying that sometimes, you know, we can't control everything. Life can really... But I'm talking about in ways that I don't think they should be surprised that this is where they are, this is what they're experiencing, and this is the fruits of their lives. Because if you knew what was going on on in the heart, it would make perfect sense as to where your life is aimed. Where your heart is aimed is where your life is headed, regardless of what your lips are saying. That's what I want us to dig into a little bit. So what can we learn about the heart from this, this passage? Number one, Here's what I think this passage teaches and the Bible teaches. Your choices and my choices are what determine who you are and where you end up. Basically, verses 1 to 18, I read them for you, are all about choices that every single one of us have to make about the path you're going to step onto. But verse 18 has some really good news. The path of the righteous is like the shining sun that shines brighter and brighter under the perfect day. And don't make a mistake, this is not like a best-selling Christian book that's saying, oh, the path of the righteous has no problems, God protects them from cancer, they don't lose their jobs, they don't have rebellious kids. That's not what the verse is saying. Some hard things can be going on in your life, but you're able to see what to do next. You're aimed in the right direction through it because of what this passage is teaching. What verse 18 is saying is that we all have to keep making decisions, but when the righteous choose to do what God says, you'll find yourself walking with greater light and less confusion, and you can expect that to keep growing for a lifetime. Greater light and less confusion. Greater light and less... Very often the darkness and the confusion of our lives, when people are like, I'm just so confused, is because you keep second-guessing. God says this, but I think this, and so I did it. And now things are even worse, but it seems so right. And someone else told me, and I'm not talking about unbelievers. Every now and then I counsel unbelievers who will ask for help, and it's a thrill. But what I'm concerned about is the bulk of my counseling is professing believers in good churches. Mine. (laughs) You know, I mean, I teach the Bible, and when I sit down with them, they are in places they have landed by repeatedly saying, yeah, I know God's word says, but this seems so much... This You don't have to be surprised about where you end up. But here's what most people do not understand. Your choices will never change. Like, ah, I shouldn't have done that. I should do a better... Your choices will never change until you get a hold of your heart. Look at what I'm talking about in verse 23. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. That means as your heart goes, so goes everything else significant in your life. The NIV says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So here's what we need to understand about the word heart. Not just in Proverbs 4.23, but in the rest of the Bible, heart does not simply mean feelings. When the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about the control center of your life, who you really are, what you truly, you may not say out loud, but what you value most, treasure most, prize most, what gets you up in the morning, why you do what you do. It's not primarily talking about emotions. It's talking about beliefs, commitments, motivations. And so that's why the word heart is used almost 1,000 times in the Bible. Because God knows that until your heart changes, the direction of your life and your choices will not change. Because your heart and my heart is the control center for all that's going on in your life. 
This passage unpacks that for us and gives an example of that. That's why the rest of the chapter talks the way it does. So Proverbs 4.23 is the heart verse. Then look what he does in verses 24 to 27. It's only after you get a hold of the heart in verse 23 that then you can work on what you say in verse 24. See that? Put away from you a deceitful mouth. So you need to think to yourself, why do I lie? Not just memorize a do not lie verse. When you get a hold of the heart, people lie for a reason. There's a motive. How does that serve you? What are you doing? It is, people love to act like human beings are bizarre. Oh, that's bizarre. And there are a few bizarre people. But, and you may be married to one, I don't know. But there aren't as many bizarre people as our world acts like. If you could see the heart, everything we do serves us. There's a, now, even, even be careful... Often we don't know why we're doing it. We haven't taken enough time to think about it. We're doing it, and we don't know. So this is not easy work, saying, God, but I pressed it all weekend, and I'll say it again here. You don't have to be a master therapist or a certified counselor to get yourself some help on this. You ready? This is worth the price of admission right here. Start praying Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my, say it, heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You might not know what's going on, and sometimes I am confused. Sometimes I just feel weepy. I feel overwhelmed. I feel discouraged, depressed. And I'll just say, God, what is going on? I know he knows. It takes a little bit of time, and I'll just get a piece of paper and say, and here's how I say it to myself. What have I been saying to myself? What have I been believing? In the shower, in the car when I don't have the radio on, in those moments, we are not aardvarks, golden retrievers, or houseplants. We think, we think, we think. We are interpreters. We're interpreters. Whether you realize it or not, you are constantly interpreting your circumstances and trying to make sense of it. Problem? We often connect the dots in very unbiblical, wrong ways. But it leads to what we feel next and what we do next. But you are an interpreter. You are interpreting relentlessly. I'll give you an example. And, it, and it's funny and it's silly, but we don't grow out of this. I wish we did. When my oldest daughter was like five, my father's mother was living with us because Grandpa had died. So this was kind of new. It was the first Thanksgiving that Grandma was with us. We used to go to their house in Indiana, but now Grandma's with us. Grandpa's dead. She's five. So she's just sitting at the big Thanksgiving table, just taking it all in, you know, just a little girl. She didn't say anything, but we're all expressing how much we miss Grandpa. And it came up that Grandma doesn't have a car. At some point, doesn't have a car. We need a... So I'm tucking her in bed that night. And she looks at me and says, oh, we need to pray for, for Grandma. I said, you're right. This is a very sad time. She said, because Grandpa died and went to heaven and took the car with him. <laughs> We never said he took the car with him. What's she doing? She's created in the image of God. She is an image bearer. She's a human being. She's not... The, the dog didn't make any mistake like that. She did. Because when she heard those facts, we, do, we don't want it left random. It was two bad things. And she's trying to figure out, how's this going on? Oh, oh, guess what? We're still guilty of it. We're still guilty of that. you got to understand... Heart, out of that, you're going to think something, say something, feel something, do something. Notice verse 25, you can only take charge over your eyes where you place them after you're guarding your heart, you're guarding your heart. Think about the behavior and actions in verse 26 and 27. Ponder the path of your feet. But it all starts with the heart. Why do I keep going there? Why do I keep looking at that? Why do I keep saying this? It's not random. Ask God, what is going on in my heart? What am I believing? What am I wanting? What am I prizing? What am I treasuring? Yea, verily, what am I worshiping? I hope you realize we do not just worship on Sunday when we sing a great song about God. Every day, all throughout the day, you are a worshiper. Worship is nothing more than making much of something. Glorifying something responding to something. But it all starts with the heart in verse 23, because your mouth and eyes and hands and feet are all tied 
to your heart. As your heart goes, so goes the rest of you. Letter B. What your heart loves will determine where and how your life. What's going on there? I'm sorry, I didn't give you the yeah, yeah. What your heart loves will determine where and how your life goes. You can argue all day long. That's not what's going on in the heart. But where your life goes, you can trace back. Even if things were done to you, you say, but Brad, we live in a world where sometimes I'm on the receiving end. Granted, and don't hear me saying you're at fault. But every one of us still has a choice as to how to respond to whatever happens to us. That's still, I am in control of that. Now, our world doesn't give you that kind of thinking. And it's very hopeless and filled with despair that if this happens to you, you are now a XYZ and here's your label and you're stuck for life. It is not a kind thing to go down that path. The Bible offers much, much, much more hope. There's redemption and there's hope in the midst of sin and brokenness because we have the power of the gospel and the power of the resurrection that is not just something we sing about on Easter Sunday, but something that's a reality every day of the year if you're a believer. There's resurrection power in you. There's no, no longer are you chained and a slave to sin. Sin is, sin is still a great temptation, but there's a freedom and a power you never had before. Long before, you need to understand, long before you ever cross over a line into an outward specific sin, you first lost an inward battle. You first lost an inward battle, whether you were aware of it or not for the throne of your heart, because your heart was already beginning to be ruled by something other than Jesus Christ. And that drives how you act and speak. You might have someone in your life right now, co-worker, family member, I don't know, that you just think, I don't understand what they're doing. I don't understand why they're doing it. Every time I get close, and sadly it's often I have to get close, to a big fat mess with adultery. And often it's, it's in the middle of happening. I can't tell you how often I have pleaded with someone. Oh, look at the path you're on. Oh, look at what this is doing. Oh, trust me. They cannot see and they do not care what this is doing to everyone around them. Something happened first in the heart and now... I like to say sin makes you stupid. All right? And that's me too. But when the heart shifts and clicks and says, Woo! I'm not a hunter, but i got a lot of guys in the church that are. Uh, so deer season's a big deal. So this was new to me when I knew, moved to northern Kentucky, Cincinnati. And so I'm told there's this time, and I don't remember what the dates are. It has something to do with the moon. Every time I ask for an explanation, it pff, eludes me. But they're all about it. Something about the moon, the equinox, and da-da-da. That, that sets the... It's called... Maybe some of you know, they're in rut, right? So I go all year long. I live where deer are in my yard all the time. I wish they weren't. I used to love deer until I moved there. They eat my azalea. They eat all my stuff. I hate them. If I, I could become a hunter. <laughs> so there they go. There goes mama and three little, and they've got a little trail. And, oh, they eat my stuff. And they just, I mean, down to the nub. But, I, but I'm, thanks for being there for me. <laughs> So I never see, I always think I'd love to see a deer with a big rock. But no, they're smart. They're high. I don't know if they say, they send women and children ahead first. I don't, I don't know when they come out. They are not real men. I know that. It's women and children wandering around all the time. Men are hanging out, playing cards, drinking deer beer. I don't know. But you never see them until we're in rut. And all of a sudden, where have you been? Not only are you visible, but you're stupid. Like, I'm coming home from church, and I'm driving down this busy road. I do not live out in the country. I live three miles from downtown Cincinnati, but I'm on a hill. This deer came out of nowhere between two houses. He didn't pause and check on traffic. He didn't use his blinker. He just slammed into, fortunately, the front of my car and did a couple flips and hit the ground, dusted himself off, and kept going. Why? Doe, 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 doe. Doe. He's running after a doe. And they, they don't pay attention to anything else. That's what we're like. When the heart 
All of a sudden, you've shifted, and you are worshiping something else. There's something else on the altar of your heart. And so it's not, that's so bizarre. That's just not like her. That's not like him. Often, you can't see it because it's below the surface. That's why all of a sudden, something, someone you know and love or respect will do something heinous, and you're like, what? If you could have seen what was brewing and going on in the heart for quite some time, it would make sense. In most cases, it's not, oh my goodness, all of a sudden they just had a frontal lobe brain explosion. And No, 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 no. It has very little to do with the brain. And even we live in a culture that everyone's always grabbing me and saying, you know, their loved ones like, oh, they got a chemical imbalance. They're just doing this, that, and the other. Yeah, there's an imbalance. Way too much sin. That's the imbalance. And if you could see the heart, what have they been saying to themselves? What have they... So people commit adultery for all kinds of different reasons. Some of it's power. Some of it's just the thrill of naughtiness, just crossing the line. I, I could give you five, six, seven, eight different reasons that were at the heart of why some... And the reason I'm telling you this is when I sit down with people to lead them to repentance, it's not enough to just say, well, here's a great do not commit adultery verse, all right? Memorize that. Let's never do this again. And often the person who commits adultery, I cannot tell you how many times this happens, when they've confessed it to God and confessed it to me and confessed it to their spouse, they are so ready to move on. They always say to me, why do we have to keep meeting? I confessed it to God. I confessed it to her. I confessed it to you. And I'm always like, I don't say what I want to say. I want to say shut up. But I say, your confession is a great start. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who hides his sin will not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. I said, we're going we're gonna to walk together. I want to help you forsake it or you'll be right back to it if we don't figure out what was going on in your heart. What were you saying to yourself? I deserve better. My job is hard. I need some pleasure. I, I like power. I like dominating people. I, like, I, don't, I don't know. And they'll always say, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, let's find out. And it's going to take some time. But I'm going to try to help this person get to the heart of what they were believing, saying, prizing, worshiping that would change the direction of their life so that that not happen again. Otherwise, it's going to happen again. As your heart goes, so goes your life and choices. What the Bible actually teaches is the problem with Christians is you can actually love good things too much. You can take a good thing and try to turn it into a God thing that you build your whole world around. And so with Christians, I, I often hear, all I want is, and they feel like if what comes next is a good thing, all I want is a godly marriage. Could you want a godly marriage so bad that you're actually destroying it with your own hands? I'll answer that for you. Yes. I see it all the time. It's that person that's like, I just, we just heard that sermon series, that marriage sermon series, and now, when are you going to do it? I want you, when are you going to do it? Step up, I'll, I'll settle for nothing less than right here, right here. You're not discipling the boys. We're not meeting to pray and read our Bibles. You're, you're not on the evangelism team. You're not, eh, 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 eh. take a breath. Take a breath. It's great what you want, but you can start saying and shift. I won't be happy until we have this. Oh, no, 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 no. Be careful. I want godly children who all follow the Lord. So do I. But if you make that your whole world, and that is my number one thing, and I will not be happy until I know all five children are goose-stepping along for Jesus Christ and His kingdom, you can get in trouble. You just might not ever have any joy. Work. Is work a good thing? Is work bad or good? It's good. It's hard now since Genesis 3, but it's still good. We're created in the image of God. There was work before the fall in Genesis 3. It's good. Can you take work and use it in a way that it now becomes a bad thing? If your whole identity is consumed in it and you become a workaholic, this is how I prove myself. This is how I have a sense of, of worth. And I need everyone there to recognize me. Recognize me. You're not working for the glory of God. You're working for the glory of you, which means you'll cross the line working longer than you should, doing things at work that maybe you shouldn't do because I must keep advancing. Is money a sin? Is it in, inherently bad? No. And this gets misquoted all the time. Well, you know, 
Money is the root of all evil. No, the Bible doesn't say that. There's a word you lost. What is it? The love of money is the root of all evil. Money can do great good when you allow it to, to move freely through you and onto others. Freely through you. And the people I see who God sends the most are the ones who do not keep it. When God realizes, oh my goodness, this is someone who will, who will send it on to others and get this into kingdom business, money can do great good. The love of money has destroyed untold people who decide, oh my goodness, I don't just want to use money, I trust in money, I must have money, money get, gets me the things I want, I must have my retirement just right. Good things can become toxic, destructive things when you build your whole world around it. That's when it stops being good. Even marriage is a good thing. But if you start saying, I have to be married to someone who's doing this, it has to look like this. If you make it an ultimate thing, you even don't want your spouse, I hope you realize this, to make you number one. That might have shocked you. Somebody like, no, that's when we have a great marriage. I need to be number one, number one, number You want to be number two, my friend. Marriage should never be ultimate. Your spouse should love the Lord, their God, with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and you as their closest neighbor. If marriage is primary, you're in trouble because, because the bar will be set so high. If your spouse is being satisfied in an intimate real relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what you want. You want them to come rolling out of times with the Lord saying, oh my goodness, that was so good. I feel so encouraged, so loved, so affirmed. So You're like, who you been with? Who's in there? Jesus! That's what's supposed to happen when you meet with Him. Not just information, but transformation and affirmation. And I don't mean this in a secular, you know, you're so great, you're so great, you're so great. But all of us as human beings want to know that we're loved. Know that we're accepted. Know that we're affirmed. No, you get all that in Jesus, your identity in Jesus. And then when you come out of your times with Him, you don't need as much from everybody else. Because when you need more than people were designed to give, you crush them. And some of you maybe have a story that sounds a lot like that. Your story, when you tell it, is everybody, everyone's failed you. Friends have failed you. Churches have failed you. I want you to consider, are you that person perhaps, but because of the lack of intimacy with Jesus, don't even hear me saying you're not saved. You say, well, I know I'm saved. All right. Can you be saved and still not truly know and have an intimate, delightful, worshipful relationship with Jesus Christ? Yes. Because that takes time. You have to make time to spend with him. And to delight in Him, know Him, grow in Him. When your spouse has Jesus as primary and you as secondary, they don't need as much. And that's a much better place to be. You can take good things and turn them into God things that become very destructive. Even children. Children are a blessing. The Bible makes that clear that children are a blessing. But at no point does the Scripture say, therefore... Build your whole world around them. Make them your whole world. And so I, I, I know the tendency is when we see the world doing something horrible, we don't just adjust. Sometimes Christians go too far the other way. So the world neglects children. The world is not doing a great job with our children, I don't think. But it doesn't mean God's called us to make them our whole world. No, 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 no. Children are a blessing. I used to say to our kids all the time, you are my child, and you are a welcomed, loved guest in our home. But I run this home. I had a daughter that like, was trying to run the home. And I will invite you, not when they were young, I will invite you to find another place to live. And I did that on two occasions. They weren't five. As they got older... There's nothing guaranteed to you, my friend. And oh, by the way, the way you speak to this woman that's your mom, if you don't speak to her the way I want her to be spoken to, she was my wife before she was ever your mom. I would tell them all the time, whoa, 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 especially the boys, (laughs) settle down. You want some of this? Hmm? (laughs) Like, 
I never laid hands on them, but I do think I bumped chests. <laughs> I go to the gym for a reason. If you're not doing that, do it. Because when you have teenagers, you've got to be able to do this a little bit. It'll flex. Like, oh, no, 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 you don't want any of this. Like, mm-mm. But I would make it clear. Oh, you don't want it to become... I mean, I, I hear all the time, like, I even hear it at the gym. You know, some guy was next to me changing his clothes. He's like, oh, man, my wife is still making a sandwich for my son. He's 24. He's in the basement. He'll just say, make me a sandwich. And she does it. But we've got Christian women doing that, too. Your 24-year-old son should not be telling you to make him a sandwich. Invite him to discover bread and slice sandwich meats <laughs> and his hands and laundry. Here's what I'm watching. Mothers are preparing boys especially to be terrible husbands because they just doted on him, did everything for him, served him hand and foot, and then he heads into marriage and thinks his wife is supposed to take the place of his mother. You've done her no favor. Vicky thanks my mom all the time. When we, when we hit ninth grade, she said, now you're doing your own laundry. Here's how it works. Here's how the washer works. Here's how the dryer works. When there was leftovers and it was a nice meal, you don't touch that. That is not for you to just devour Saturday at 2 o'clock for your lunch. That's our next supper. Make a sandwich. There were all these rules. And it got me ready for marriage so that I didn't treat my wife like my handmaiden. But we've got mothers that I think they need to be loved more than they even... And if you'll do that, oh yeah. So you've got this... But the relationship between the children, and often it's the son, sometimes it be the daughter, they become best friends, becomes primary. The marriage is primary, not the mother-child relationship. And that's why we've got what the world calls empty nest syndrome. Some of these syndromes that the world talks about this passage is telling us what's really going on. Idolatry. If a mother builds her whole world around her children, it's all she thinks about, lives for, serves them. I am just one big mother. There's no other identity or role that I have. Guess what? You will be lost when they leave home. And you'll just be like, who am I now? I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm not packing a little lunch. I don't feel like I have meaning. Like That should never have happened. You keep going out with your husband. You keep loving your husband. You keep spending time with other friends. And oh, it's a privilege to be a mother. And then when they're gone, you're not lost. Like, I don't know who I am. You should still know who you are. Oh, here's my name. I'm a child of God. I have a husband. And now we can see each other more. I told it over the weekend, but I'll, I'll tell it again here. We've lived in the same neighborhood for 25 years. So everyone watched my five kids grow up, you know, running around in the yard. And there's a rope swing in the front yard and a pulley and all this stuff. It's evident we have kids so it's evident they're all gone now and one of the number one awkward moments that we have walking around the block it's a mile we know everybody they're like oh wow i can tell they're all gone now doesn't that make you sad we're just like uh no no should should we be and you can tell i mean like i've been waiting to see this woman more i love her i'm so happy to not spell words in the car we just talk I don't have to spell things. I play my music. No complaints. We ride bikes on the bike trail in Southern as long as we want without someone saying, I'm tired. Can we? He's got little cowboy boats on. And he's done after like 100 yards. We, we hooked the bikes on the back, came all the way here, and I have to hear you complain the whole time. We bike. We talk. We listen to music. I can run naked through the house now. It's like, I've thought about that for decades. I, I thought we would both do that. I, I should have declared that. I was so wrong. She has no desire to do that. But she lets me. It's like all these things that now, if you keep a relationship, even with our last one, our, our youngest is 21, and we did think, because she's like sweet as sweet as sweet as sweet. We're like, mm, maybe, maybe when she moves out, which was 2020, will we find ourselves just like, no, multiple times my wife says to me, is this not wonderful? Oh my goodness, just, it's peaceful. And, because it doesn't matter how old they are, they need something for her. Mom, can you help me sign up for this? Mom, can you sell this? Mom, can you fix it? Mom, they're gone. They, no, they do text. <laughs> and they do live in the area. And it's a joy to get together with them. Don't hear what I'm not saying. 
But to all of a sudden think, I don't know who I am or what to do with myself because my kids grew up, not good. That's actually a win. And they grow up and go, that's what's supposed to happen. Paul Tripp talks about a woman he was counseling. And he says this, that describes well what I'm talking about. Joanna thought she had grown in her faith. The problem was that she'd forgotten who she was. You can lose who you are in the midst of, I shared on the weekend, ministry, job, mothering. And it was not long before her identity in Christ was replaced by another identity. Joanna's children became her new identity. They gave her meaning and purpose, and they really did give her hope and joy. The problem was they were not sent by God to do any of that. Joanna lived vicariously through them, and the more she did, the more she became obsessed with their success. See, if you make your children your whole world, whoo, you need every one of them to do great. And if you have enough of them, they all will not do great. And now, you're going to be, quote, devastated. Like, oh my goodness. Joanna was just as faithful in her personal devotions and public worship But God was no longer at the center of who she was. All it took was her son Jimmy to mess it all up. With all of his inner turmoil, Jimmy didn't make a very good trophy. Being with Jimmy often meant unexpected confrontations and public embarrassment. Her girls were forced to live in the wings of Jimmy's drama, and they didn't turn out to be trophy children either. Now that they were all adults, Joanna was lost. In their tumultuous launch into adulthood, the kids not only broke Joanna's heart, but they also robbed her of her identity. She felt like it had all been for naught. When she looked in the mirror, she felt like she didn't know the person that she saw there. Oh, listen to me. Think about this also. If if some of you are pushing back, thinking, that's just kind of harsh. I want to love my kids. You can't even love someone else well until you first don't need them to fulfill your identity. When you know who you are, and that is being met through Jesus Christ, because get this, I don't have a Bible verse for this, but I think it captures the biblical concept. Biblical love is giving for the needs of another, expecting nothing in return. When mamas have lost their identity in their children, they do love, 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 but they need stuff back. They need the recognition which is not true love, and it creates conflict in the home, and you're not calling enough, and you... You can't even truly love well until you first begin to not need them completely for who you are. Love is giving. Giving. Think about it in the Bible. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave. Ephesians 5, where we have that husband-wife passage. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Love is giving, giving, giving. But when that love is mixed up with a heart that has set itself on that other person, to worship them and build your world around them, you will need a lot back. And it creates confusion. Here's where I see it all the time. Ooh, I, have to, I have to address this in counseling all the time. I don't know why. It's, I don't want to stereotype, but it tends to be boys. I've got a guy who's married, and that mama, his mama, ooh, she's not done. And, and she doesn't come out and say it. Like, I'm in competition with that new wife and I have to keep proving I'm first, I'm first, I'm first. But her actions and what she's doing is actually not helping this new marriage at all. I had a situation where I was counseling. They were in their 50s. And his mother still called her that girl. That girl. And he did And here's what I get from the guys. And I have to come at them hard every time. Well, that's just my mom. No, that's just wrong. That's wrong. And I tell every one of them to confront their mother right at the dinner table when she does that. She was calling the house. So he's at work, and she was a stay-at-home mom with some kids. She would call the house relentlessly, and if she didn't answer it immediately, she would call him at work and say, your wife is lazy. I'm calling, and she's not even answering. 
We've got mamas making messes in marriages because they still like controlling and knowing, I'm the queen bee. You're supposed to release them and do everything you can to allow that new marriage that is now the priority of oneness to grow and build. But you can't do it if you were the queen bee that felt significant with this son and now I still have to have this. A lot of the messes that we face relationally are the result of idolatry. Idolatry. Somebody needs something more than they're supposed to need it. What about work? Is work good? Yes. We're created in the image of God as workers, and He gives you skills, and it feels good to do something, to produce something, to create something. And yet it was never meant to become your complete identity, and it's my world, and it's how I feel affirmed, because I hope you, you, I'm sure you're sensing this, we have a marketplace now that, whew, people don't start with XYZ Company and retire 40 years later, and they give you a plaque and a watch. They, just, they will just let you go for any reason. As soon as we got someone better who can do it faster, whew, as soon as we think we want to cut costs, we're going to combine these three departments. It used to be five people, now it's two. If your job is your identity, you will be rocked on a regular basis and left. Whew. I'm going to date myself, but even uh, you see it with athletes that I do feel bad. They're, the shelf life on the career of an athlete is so short. Right? A professional athlete. Because you're not going to do this past like 34, 35, 36. Every now and then there's a Tom Brady or a Drew Brees that makes it 41, 42. But you've got a lot of life left. And if it, it was I am a quarterback or I am, what am I supposed to do now? I don't know who I am. And if you're sitting there thinking, no, I would be fine with that. I know who I am. I'm rich. I have lots of money. It's not enough. Money is not what the human heart craves the most. It's purpose, meaning. Listen to what Chrissy Everett said. I date myself, but she was it in in female women's tennis when I was growing up, and I loved tennis. She was the top tennis player in all the world. Her career win-loss record was the best of any singles player in history. But listen to what she says when she got close to retirement because it captures what I'm talking about today. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like somebody. We got some people that being a mother makes me feel like... I've actually heard young women in our church say, oh, oh, I just always have to have a little baby. I I can't imagine not having a little baby. I want to say to them, girl, they grow up into teenagers. Stop at some point. All these little babies become teenagers and become 20-year-olds. And I know, but, but why do you need that? I have to have a suckling always. I have to have a little baby. There's just something about that that makes me... I love little babies too. But oh my goodness, what is up that you just have to keep producing little babies? Go on and get ready to deal with teenagers. That's an exciting season where you'll cry out to the Lord. And then as you, you know, I know this is sweet. They don't talk and you just rock them. And uh, well, there's more to life. They need something. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause in order to have an identity. It's pervasive with all human beings. That's why we have a philosophy department. Golden retrievers don't. Chimpanzees don't. You know, they don't gather. Dogs don't gather together and ever say, so why do we chase cars? We lost Freddie last week with the Jeep. Like, (laughs) but we still do it. They don't. They don't think about why they're doing what they're doing. They just poop and eat and sleep and breed and get hit by cars and we do it all over again. Human beings are the only ones that created a philosophy department, right? We're the only ones that wear turtlenecks and smoke pipes and say, so what is life really about? And that is evidence that we're created in the image of God. You want more than just right here, right now, tactile. What can I touch? What can I taste? What can I see? Just work, make money, live life. No one is satisfied with that, no matter how much money they get, because we're created in the image of God and need purpose and meaning and acceptance and affirmation and love and adoption through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
we actually have and are experiencing what every human being longs for. They just don't all know it. So again, don't ever forget. Don't feel intimidated by our world, you guys. You have what people need. And you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Number three, your heart won't let go and be still until it rests in something better. To just say to your heart, don't do that, don't do that, don't go there, don't do that, you have to be satisfied in something better. It's a silly illustration, but hopefully you know by now, don't ever go to the grocery store hungry. You know, when I do that, I find myself doing things I would never do. I try to be healthy, I drink water, I eat fresh vegetables, but I will be in the Twinkie aisle just tearing off the cellophane and pushing it in my mouth when I'm hungry. And I just let the little wrapper go along the conveyor belt. I said, that was a Twinkie. And, and those were some raw almonds. Oh, oh, yes, and there was this caramel candy bar that charged me for all that. But I was hungry. But when you're satisfied, when you've had prime river, oh, when you've had brisket, asparagus, just lightly grilled, not cooked to death till it turns dark, sea salt, lime juice, mashed potatoes, not instant with water, ladies, real mashed potatoes, lots of butter, not margin, real butter. Stays with you. Every time I eat teriyaki, I'm like, what was that? I'm like, two, two hours later, I could just tear the head off something. It's like, but when you've had a good, solid meal, you can say no to cotton candy and no to all this stuff. The only way to say no and for your heart to have the strength that no is if you're tasting and experiencing something better, something better, something better. That better is truly knowing Jesus Christ and enjoying Him and delighting in Him. Your heart won't be still until it rests in something better. That's why Augustine said what he did. And he knew he had lived wild. His mother prayed for him for 30... Monica prayed for Augustine. For, so those mothers and parents that are hurting with wayward kids, she, you know, we think Augustine of Hippo, great guy, wrote all this great stuff wild till he was in his late 20s early she prayed for him well it must have been in his 30s because I read she prayed for him 32 years and then God used him greatly and he was satisfied in something better in the 1600s Samuel Rutherford was a godly pastor who spent two years in prison for preaching the gospel but he says it was there in that prison that he made a great discovery about the source of real happiness. Listen to what he says that might sound shocking at first. If God told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world, and then told me that he should begin by crippling me in all my limbs and removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing his purpose. And yet... How is his wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wish to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all his lamps and then throw open the shutters to let in the light of heaven. You understand what he's saying? That's us so often trapped in a dark room, bowing down to the little lamps of children or marriage or career or image or money. It's all we know. We think it's just, this is good. Oh, no, 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 this is sad. This is... And God can try to be, point us to something better, but often, don't hear me saying he's capricious or he's mean. He's a good God, but he's good enough and loves us enough that often he knows, until I shake up a little or take what you are building your world around, you'll never consider something better. He starts by blowing out some of our lamps so that he may throw open the shutters and get the real light and satisfaction of knowing him. In commenting on this quote, John Piper said, Oh, how I pray that when God in his mercy begins to blow out my lamps, I will not curse the wind. Some of you know the story for Vicky and I. Trust me, I, I intended to have five godly children. 
We read books about it. We homeschooled. I did the character cards, antelope, beaver. I had us memorize the Sermon on the Mount. We didn't have a TV in the living room. I, I could give you a list of all I, I did that I thought was going to produce five God-fearing, Jesus-loving children. And their sin is their sin. Don't hear me saying God made them. But God is sovereign. And you guys, oh my goodness. Him blowing out my lamp and Vicky's lamp of having five amazing, godly children caused us to turn a place and learn things about ourselves. It revealed judgmentalism and all kinds of ugliness we were not aware of. It kicked the feet out underneath our autonomous, self-sufficient, you know, we do it right. If people would just do what we're doing with our kids, they get the same kind of... My, my oldest daughter was singing on the praise team, loving... It was like someone just threw a switch and... Don't hear me saying God made her do that. Do hear me saying God graciously allowed this trial into our lives because it caused us to look somewhere else. Vicky could no longer be fulfilled. She'd read all those homeschool stuff, and the magazines, the digest, went to all the conferences. Problem, you don't want to be at the conference with other women who, who have the front porch and the matching dresses and are growing their own herbs when you've got two rebellious kids because the sense is you ain't a good mama. Because if you do it right and you grind it on a rock and you all have matching dresses and you built the front porch together, you'll have godly kids. So much of it was you got to have a piece of land to be in the country. I was like, we live three miles from Cincinnati. How powerful. That is a sad commentary. And they don't come out and say it, but it's just felt. You've got to get in the country. You've got to have a home business. The boys have to work with their hands with dad and the girls have to. The gospel is bigger than that. There are people who cannot afford a piece of land and can never buy large farm animals, and the gospel can save people in an inner city. And it causes you to realize, oh, wow, it's God. And when you face moments where a lamp is blown out, and your lamp may be a health, you thought you were always going to be healthy, your lamp may be a financial thing that happened this past year, your lamp may be a job thing, don't just curse the wind. What if God in his mercy is blowing out a lamp so that you might turn to a light and a hope and experience him in a way that you've never experienced and reorient your heart to where it should have been all along? Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your help. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for your commitment not to just save us, but to continue your work in us from the inside out for your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.